Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, as the Senate Judiciary Committee nears that vote on Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's historic nomination, we'll have analysis on the process so far. I'll speak with law professors... First, from University of Georgia, Sonia West, and from Georgia State University, Tanya Washington. That's coming up. Also, a cool girl's guide to courage. What does that mean? Well, it means motivational speaker and author Candace Doby will join me to talk about keeping a written progress of one's courage journey. And we'll remember the life and work of civil rights activist, educator, and famed photographer, Dr. Doris Derby. Now that's coming up. But first this, state lawmakers have been up really early this morning working to get some measures through this legislative session. I'm going to check in now with our WABE politics reporter, Raul Bally, who's down at the state capitol, about one in particular. Raul, welcome. Hey, Rose. Listen, I know there's been a lot of movement regarding, I think it's House Bill 1013. This is the Mental Health Parity Act. Take our listeners through the last 24 hours, because from what I understand, word on the curb is it's been something. It, it has been, you know, for, for our listeners who heard my story a couple of days ago, you had mental health and substance abuse advocates who, who felt like the bill, and this is the mental health parity bill. Mm-hmm. And what that basically means, most importantly, is mental health and substance abuse treatment and health care being treated the same as physical health care, treating depression the same way you treat a broken arm in terms of coverage, mm-hmm. what you cover, how you cover it. And, and 48 hours ago, the advocates were, were, they felt like the bill had been weakened when it came through the state Senate. Negotiations then happened all day yesterday. And, and kind of at the end of the day, I had people pull me to the side and say, there's a deal, there's a deal. And so the House and Senate have, have reached a deal on how to cover mental health and substance abuse in the state of Georgia. And so where things stand now is this morning, there was an early morning committee hearing. The bill was introduced, rolled out, it was approved. At this very moment, it is now sitting in the state Senate. Uh, I'm right outside the doors of the state Senate and they're gonna vote on it. Uh, That's on the calendar. And what we've also been told is today, it will cross the hallway to the other side of the building over there where the house will vote on it too. And it will be effectively on the way to the governor's desk. Now, let's back up and just explain process for our listeners here, Raul. So when it goes back over to the House, is there going to be a debate? Can they what other procedures could they possibly implement to hurry up and get this to Governor Kemp's desk? It's because this bill has already passed the House once. A lot of those steps don't have to happen again. And my understanding is since the House and Senate have reached a deal, yes, there's going to be debate, people Mm -hmm. talking about the bill. But as long as 
no changes are made in the house because if a change is made to a bill it has to go back to the other side uh to be voted on again basically my understanding is the senate's going to vote on it and then it'll be sent to the house and the house will do basically agree to it and then send it over to uh the governor's desk Raul, I don't know if you've had a, a lot of time to really thoroughly dissect this, but I imagine this bill is different now than what it was when it was first introduced. It is different. And I think, let me tell you one of the areas that's been a big concern. Mm-hmm. If, if, if a person's having a mental health crisis, obviously it's a, it's a police officer who comes out to a house or a place and deals with that. The question is who's responsible for that person once the crisis is over, once it's de-escalated, does a police officer keep transporting you? Does an ambulance keep transporting you mm-hmm. or someone else? And so what the deal in this bill, my understanding and what I've been told is a law enforcement officer will take you, for example, to a hospital. They, they, get, they stabilize you. Then the hospital will be responsible for figuring out, fig, figuring out who transports you. So it could be an officer or it could be an ambulance. And then the language around parity, mm-hmm. generally accepted standards of care. That's what's so important here is that definition. What are the accepted definitions? Because those are the definitions that government is going to use to enforce on insurance companies. Mm-hmm. That's, and so that's the language that they came to an agreement with last night. What are the generally accepted standards of care for mental health? And substance abuse. Again, for clarity, Raul, is it possible then that this bill could actually head to Governor Kemp today? It could be on the governor's desk today. I would not expect the governor to sign it today mm-hmm. just because the governor is going to kind of be that last person who goes through the bill to find mistakes or issues or problems with the bill. You know, it's come together pretty quickly, even clerical errors. So, you, uh, the governor, I don't expect the governor to sign it today. And that's not a reflection of the governor's position. It's just that important step of going through mm-hmm. a 70 plus page bill and making sure there are no mistakes, no errors on how it's been written or unintended consequences, which happens from time to time as well. Raul, you've covered the General Assembly for some time, for some years now. A word I keep hearing regarding all the maneuvers to get this passed is wow. Yeah, yeah, I mean. Because it's so big. Mm-hmm. Have we seen bills move quickly in this building? Yes. Something this big, this and this changing for the state. You are really talking about a significant change in how Georgians get mental health care. And when I talk about mental health care, we're not just talking about, you know, uh, you're not just talking about depression sure. or, or an episode. You're talking about you know, the mental health spectrum also includes substance abuse, Mm -hmm. also includes autism. It's such a wide range of things you're talking about, and it touches so many Georgians and and how quickly this is moving. And we should note Georgia for the last few years here, if not the last decade, has been ranked as being last in terms of states with, in terms of grading, states with adequate access for, for treatment and resources for mental health. So this is a major, this is at least part of a major overhaul of the state's mental health resources. Uh, Raul, uh, any other bill that appears for clearance, perhaps related to mental health here? There was actually one passed today in the Senate. So uh, for those in our audience, if you've done your last will and testament, and you've also done an advanced medical directive, i.e. what happens to you if you can't talk on your behalf, 
you know, there's now a bill called the Psychiatric Advanced Directive. And that's the idea of if you're having a mental health episode or issue, what's going to be your care in that arena? Again, this is kind of that part of that bigger conversation of treating mental health the same as physical health. Mm -hmm. And so this would be a, a way to do a legal document that says, if I'm having an issue, this is how I want to be cared for. Mm. Finally, Raul, as we wrap up, how do you describe the frenzy right now at the state capitol? It, it, it was already frenzied. We're charging towards the end. Monday is the final day. Um, you know, lawmakers are, are, are like, how can I get my bill done? Um, you know, right before this morning's hearing um, on the mental health bill, I was watching, you know, representative senators talking about, I need to get my bill done. I need to get my bill done. There are so many bills not enough time. Mm -hmm. And and on Monday, Tuesday, we're going to be talking about bills that didn't make it. Wow. WABE politics reporter Raul Bali. As always, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Talk to you later. All right. Meanwhile, a state Senate committee has moved to basically scrap the latest round of proposed changes to Georgia election law. Now, the House had approved a bill giving new powers to the Georgia Bureau of Investigations to look into, quote, election fraud, among other changes. But as we hear from our other politics reporter, Sam Greenglass, well, there's more to this. The original 39-page House bill contained many revisions to election law. So it was a surprise when the Senate Ethics Committee came back with a substitute bill that was only two pages, striking every suggested change except affording employees time off for early voting. The question is, what happened to your bill? That was Republican Senate pro tem Butch Miller teasing the sponsor, Representative James Burchett. Here's Burchett again. This issue that we're taking up is, is one of the most politicized issues across the country, not just Georgia. So I appreciate the willingness of the committee to um, hear the bill. House Speaker David Ralston had supported the centerpiece of the bill, giving the GBI power to initiate election cases. But many election officials, voting rights activists, and even some Republican leaders like Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, president of the Senate, had been skeptical about more changes to election law. A dozen or so election officials from around the state testified on Monday asking for changes to the bill, like striking some of the new requirements for documenting how ballots are handled. Joseph Kirk, election supervisor in Bartow County, called some of the proposed changes security theater. Um, That's just going to slow us down and take more resources that we need to dedicate to other things that really matter in the process. And we only have a finite number of resources. A handful of election officials who testified on Monday released a statement calling the developments a victory for Georgia. The Senate and House have to get on the same page before the session ends next Monday. Otherwise, the bill will die. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. In other related news, Governor Brian Kemp has signed his school masking proposal into law. Now, the governor held a signing ceremony for the controversial bill at the state capitol yesterday. This bill will ensure that no local board of education, governing board, superintendent, or personnel at any public school system or state chartered school can unilaterally impose a mask mandate on students without providing parents the choice to opt their child out. Now, critics say Kemp and other Republicans are playing politics by passing the law and called it short-sighted since we are still seeing COVID infections and possible new variants. The new law takes effect immediately and runs through June of 2027. 
Clayton County School says it will be ending its mask mandating response. As for other school districts doing the same at the time of this broadcast, we only know that the Atlanta Public Schools, well, the district, they are already mask optional protocol. A district spokesperson told Closer Look APS has installed air filtration units in all classrooms, approximately 5,000 units at a cost of $3.5 million, which APS says is all federal funding to pay for it. And a note of disclosure, so don't send me an email. WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. And finally, Georgia lawmakers did have an opportunity to honor a Cartersville athlete for winning a silver medal at the Paralympic Games in Beijing. As Emil Moffat reports, the triumph came six years after the Olympian was badly injured in a car wreck. 22-year-old Garrett Jarrow says having his left leg amputated and his right leg broken meant not only a physical challenge, but also a mental one. The former three-sport high school athlete said returning to wrestling and taking up snowboard cross after his wreck helped him overcome depression. He says he never felt purely happy until earlier this month when he zipped past the finish line at the Paralympic Games. It's hard to describe. It's a feeling I've never had before, and it's an honor to be able to put that silver medal around my neck, not only for the United States, but for Georgia. Jaros was presented with a Senate resolution at the Capitol Tuesday. He says he's now eyeing a gold medal in 2026. Emil Moffitt, WABE News. A reminder to us all about perseverance and grit. Congrats, Garrett. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Maine Senator Susan Collins says she will vote to confirm Supreme Court nominee Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. So far, that's one Republican vote being made public. It's also been reported by credible news outlets that Senators Lisa Murkowski, Alaska, and Mitch Romney, Utah, are viewed as possible swing votes as well. As for the first phase of the confirmation process, depending on whom you ask, you'll get various opinions But besides that, this is a historic nomination for the Supreme Court. Joining me now for their own personal insight as jurists, both are regular contributors to Closer Look. From the University of Georgia, Sonia West, Otis Brumby, Distinguished Professor in First Amendment Law. And from Georgia State University, Professor of Law, Tanya Washington. Welcome back to both of you. Thanks for having me, Rose. All right, Professor West, I'll begin with you through your lens overall. How would you describe... What you witnessed, because I know you watched some of it, the, um, the the Senate hearings, the confirmation process. I did. I watched. I watched as much of it as I could, and you know, I will say the Senate confirmation process in our modern era is a mess uh, by any means. It is. It is an ugly process. It is a a process of endurance for whoever the nominee might be. Just simply incredibly long days of of needing to be on your toes and being able to speak coherently. Uh, but I think uh, and beyond those sort of basic problems that we have with confirmation hearings, I think there was definitely some very low moments of uh, 
questioning for Judge Jackson, uh, where uh, the questioning seemed to go certainly outside of issues that really related at all to her experience mm -hmm. or to what her job would be on the Supreme Court, and certainly ones that uh, were sort of hounding on parts of her record and seeming to suggest things that even many you know conservative right wing uh, commentators had said were uh, misleading representations of, of her record and, and what uh, the various uh, rulings she had made would really mean. Mm. Professor Washington, through your lens, how would you sum it up? Um, I agree with Professor West about those low moments. There were many of them. Um, but I was so impressed with Judge Jackson. I think she delivered a master class on kind of principles that relate to what judges do. I'll be using some of the portions of her um, answers from that transcript with my students when she talked about judicial restraint, when she talked about the approach that she uses in understanding cases, knowing how to apply the law in a fair and objective manner and where the guardrails are for, um, for judges. She also made very clear that there are things that Congress needs to do mm -hmm. if they want judges to exercise their discretion in certain ways. And so I think she was very careful uh, about highlighting that for the court um, in some of her, uh, for the uh, judicial, um, judicial, members of the judicial Judiciary Committee in her answers. And and Professor West, you talked about some of the line of questioning. I want to take a, us to take a listen and our listeners to, of course, this is South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham as he questioned. Someone sent me an email saying question in quotation marks, uh, Judge Brown Jackson. I want to talk to you a little bit about family and faith because in your opening statement and the people who uh, introduced you to the committee, uh, there was very glowing praise of uh, you as a person, a good friend. Uh, you have a wonderful family. You should be proud, and your faith matters to you. What faith are you, by the way? Senator, I am um, Protestant. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Non-denominational. Okay. Could you fairly judge a Catholic? Senator, I have a record of I think the answer would be yes. judging everyone. I believe you can. <laughs> I'm just asking this question because how important is your faith to you? Senator, personally, um, my faith is very important. Um, but as you know, there's no religious test in the Constitution under, under Article 6. And there will be none with me. And <laughs> um, it's very important to set aside one's personal views yeah. about things I, I, in the role of a judge. I couldn't agree with you more, and I believe you can. Professor West, what would you make of that? Uh, so uh, Senator Graham's questioning was one part of the sort of attempts of you know, I guess I'd call it line of attack, but he really uh, made an effort to bring up sort of the, the list of grievances that Republicans have had from past nominations. So this was clearly a very thinly veiled reference to uh, Justice Barrett's uh, nomination process, both her um, uh, 
confirmation for the Court of Appeals and then later for the Supreme Court, uh, where they felt that her religious beliefs had been questioned by some Democrats in a way that they thought was um, uh, not appropriate. That all being said, uh, it was completely out of line, I thought, for him to start asking her in such a direct way about her religious beliefs. She uh, was 100 percent correct to say this is not something the Constitution allows, that we don't have a religious test. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very unclear on which way he was um, going. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how effective it was in whatever it was he was uh, attempting to do, but I, I do want to echo what Professor uh, Washington said, that I do agree, like in this case, as in, in um, throughout the, the hearings, that mm-hmm. uh, Judge Jackson did a very um, eloquent job of, of uh, addressing his questions. All right, Professor Washington, what do you make of that exchange? Well, I mean, he clearly had a point to make. Several of the the senators, as Professor West noted, used this nomination proceeding to air grievances about past nomination proceedings of um, uh, conservative nominees to the court. Um, but I think it made, I think it, it, it tarnished the integrity of the proceedings. Um, you can't behave like that. Um, for days on end in front of a large viewing audience and think that that is going to um, in any way uh, reflect well on, you know, the Senate. Uh, the, the behavior was out of order, but it also took, took time away from actually asking Judge Jackson questions about how she would fulfill her role as a Supreme Court justice. It would have been appropriate for Senator Graham to say, how would you, how would your faith inform your decision-making or how has it informed your decision-making or how do you keep your faith from informing your Mm decision-making? I think those would have been fair questions, but asking her how important her faith is to her and asking her to articulate exactly what kind of faith she adheres to was nonsensical. Professor Washington, I'm going to stay with you for a moment because you have a, an op-ed that is circulating. It, it's called Black Women's Dignity and Supreme Disrespect. I'm going to quote a portion of it here where you say, quote, the inquisition of black women is a strategic move by those who are threatened by high achieving black women like Judge Jackson, who undermine the twin tenets of white supremacy, the primacy of whiteness and maleness. You dissect yeah. that a little bit further for us. Yes, um, it, it is strategic. Um, and farther along in the article, I say that um, it actually serves to remind Black women of and to put them back in their place. And the reason it's done publicly is so that other Black women who may aspire to be in these spaces that we've been historically um, excluded from by law um, will, will not endeavor mm-hmm. to subject ourselves to the same kind of treatment, right? If you know that's how you're going to be treated if you apply for that particular position, then it, you know, there, there was nothing encouraging about this that would that would make, inspire people to think, oh, I would love to endure four days of harsh, host, often hostile questioning. And so it was, um, it was tr- traumatizing as a black woman to watch this. I witnessed um, the performance of uh, Professor Anita Hill at Justice Thomas's nomination hearing where she was subject to the same kind of hostile 
style of questioning and she wasn't even the nominee mm-hmm. and we've seen it in the context of um just of um of uh condoleezza rice when she presented before the 9-11 commission i mean these the the disrespect that black women endure in these kinds of public spaces is, is troubling um and un- unfortunately foreseeable professor west to my understanding you you know judge judge jackson correct you that is correct Yes, she and I clerked together at the Supreme Court the same year, a little over 20 years ago. She was clerking for Justice Breyer. I was clerking for uh, Justice Stevens. And uh, I uh, was completely won over by her uh, at the time. Uh, we became friends. We stayed in touch and remained friendly. So I, I, you know, I have to be straightforward but that I am not unbiased when it comes to her nomination. <laughs> I have um, you know, known her for a long time. Well, I mean, we made attempts to get people on who who had an issue with it, but nobody wanted to come on and say that. So they say it other way in other ways, but that's just what I'm saying. Uh, Professor West, you heard what your colleague here, Professor Washington, had to say about black women in these spaces. And although you are our fellow jurists as well, and you are law professors, can you affirm what Professor Washington said about what black women go through, and especially in this space? Um, I mean, I can say that I completely, you know, what I saw was a woman who at many times did look that she was sitting there, even though surrounded by people and of course surrounded by her uh, family and friends often seemed sort of alone in uh, trying to fend off uh, what were very, in some cases, a very uh, tough questioning, very, as I said, I think often um, completely just out of line or irrelevant uh, lines of um, questioning. And going back to the idea that some of the Republicans seemed to want to relitigate what they saw as past uh, grievances from other nomination process, it was really hard. It was very stark uh, um, process for me to not think back to uh, Justice Kavanaugh's uh, uh, hearings and how he reacted, the times he reacted uh, with anger, sort of with yelling, with outbursts, um, with having uh, insults or strong attacks onto members of the Judiciary Committee, and how, in contrast, Judge Jackson at, at all times remained uh, calm, remained eloquent, remained thoughtful, remained polite, kept thanking the senators for their questions and taking the time. And um, it was you know, really impossible for me to imagine that there was any room for her to take on uh, some of the approaches that he took, uh, you know, when she was surely feeling them at times, when well, she was surely feeling frustration and anger. Let's be clear and let's talk about this for a moment, because had Judge Brown had, had Judge Brown Jackson displayed that same type of behavior with screaming and hollering and yelling and carrying on. Professor Washington, I'll let you take it from here. I mean, e- even if she had responded in kind, right, uh, with the same tone that the, some of the Republican senators used when questioning her, there would have been, she would have been reinforcing the stereotype of the angry black woman, right? Um, and so, you know, black women walk a very fine line in these spaces. We cannot express wanted anger, um, e- even when attacked. And if we survive that encounter visibly unscathed, then in my opinion, it 
it excuses the behavior because people are like, well, it must not have been that bad because she didn't react to it. And by doing so, it invites more of the same behavior. I mean, there is no way she could have reacted the way uh, Justice Kavanaugh acted, uh, reacted to the, to questioning in her nomination hearing without it having impacted the vote on her appointment. After this, in Again, it's your opinion. Do you think anything will change in this process? Professor West, you opened by saying that the, the process is just, it's, uh, these are my words, janky, because I know kids use that term. Uh, it, the whole process is just janky, needs to be remodified. Uh, does anything yeah. change after that, after this, with the process? I, I can't say that I'm very optimistic at the moment. We have been in sort of a downward spiral with this process where you can just look over the years and see, you know, sort of the bipartisanship of the committee votes and the ultimate Senate votes on nominees, um, you know, just going from highs of justice, you know, people like Justice Scalia or Justice Ginsburg having almost nearly unanimous votes in their favor. And then we, you know, go down to where it, maybe people started to get over two thirds, maybe. Uh, and then now we're having just this series of uh, nominations, you know, the, the, the Senate Republicans got rid of the filibuster. So you no longer needed 60 votes. And so now you only need uh, 50. And that's, you you know, we're starting to get uh, justices put on the bench with barely over 50 votes. We had a justice on the bench who did not have any bipartisan uh, uh, votes uh, in there. And, and, you know, this is Justice Barrett and her uh, vote. Mm -hmm. uh, most likely this one will again be uh, very close to a 50-50 vote. Hopefully, you know, just over that, it seems, with uh, Senator Collins. So, hopefully we're hitting rock bottom here soon. Hopefully people will start looking for ways to rethink what the purpose of these hearings are, what the American people need our senators to do during these senators, during these hearings, why these hearings are important. I do think that they are important. I do think we need to have this time with a nominee who is about to get life tenure to become one of the nine most important uh, jurists in our country. Mm -hmm. uh, they are important and they could be really valuable. And it's, it's actually quite sad, I think, that we are getting increasingly less value, I think, out of them. Professor Washington, I'll give the last word process. Well, I hope I hope people will will reflect on how the senator's conduct during the proceeding impacts how people view our nation's highest court. Um, and, you know, when you tarnish the, the proceedings by which we seat justices, you also tarnish the institution itself. But I think what I'm taking away from this experience is that Judge Jackson set a very high bar for how future nominees should respond to questioning, should it continue to take on the tone uh, that, that many of the Republican senators used during this process of, of interrogating her. From Georgia State University, Professor of Law, Tanya Washington. I was also in conversation from UGA. Sonia West, Otis Brumley, Distinguished Professor in First Amendment Law. Good conversation. You should see the emails. One says, thank you both. My daughter was listening. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Rose. Thank you, Dr. West. Professor Washington. This is Closer Look from WABE Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. A programming note. 
Make sure y'all tune in. Coming up next month, National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize winning author Alice Walker will join me for a conversation about her latest offering, which will be quite different from anything else she's ever written. It was edited by critic, writer, and WAB contributor Valerie Boyd, who recently passed away. It's called Gathering Blossoms Under Fire, the Journals of Alice Walker, 1965 to 2000. It's a collective of Alice Walker's 50 years of journals. Now, I don't know about y'all, I have three journals, and I'm not sure they're worthy of publishing because there's some stuff in there y'all don't need to know. But when the mood hits me, I journal. And my next guest, I'm sure, agrees. Atlanta-based, Atlanta-based author herself, national speaker, mentor, and self-proclaimed corporate America dropout. I love that. Candace Doby has an upcoming new illustration and journaling book. It's called A Cool Girl's Guide to Courage. And wait till you hear the inspiration behind it. Candace Doby, welcome to Closer Look. Thank you for having me. I got to tell you. A friend of mine, because I, I spent a lot of years at, at, at a summer camp going and working, she heard you speak, and she sent me a clip, and I said, yes, we got to have this conversation. And I did more research and found out that you were into journaling and all this good stuff, so welcome. And let me ask you this. How long have you been journaling? That is a good question. For as long as I can remember, Rose, I would say a, a solid 10, 10, 12 years. Really? You, you still yes. have all of them? I don't, I don't, I can't say that I still have all of them, but I could have quite a few of them. Are they, are they worthy of being published? We, I think I might be like you. Maybe there might be some stuff in there we don't need to share. Yeah, I don't need to know everything about what we're doing. Um, That's right. You know, I don't know who first said it, but we all often hear, you know, writing is good for the soul. Is that how you feel too? I do. I feel like writing just gives me a great opportunity to understand what I'm feeling and helps me clarify what I'm feeling. So getting those words out of your brain and on the page is medicine. And I've had some folks say, well, you know, Rose, I, I'm not a very good writer. It's not about being a good writer. It's just just write. Don't, and I tell folks, don't worry about commas and periods and apostrophes. Just write. Because if you're the only one that's reading it, you know, who really cares? Just just write. I think you're absolutely right. It's a great practice, especially with journaling, is in the the practice is not editing yourself as you write, which I think a lot of writers do. Um, so it's free flowing, getting the thoughts out as they come. It's important. You know, we were joking about you know folks not needing to know everything that does happen in our lives, but how much is being okay with being vulnerable is a part of this as well? It's a huge part. You know, my work as a speaker and a coach. What I do is I help emerging leaders and young leaders conjure their courage so that they can perform to their potential. There's all kinds of stuff that we need to do. You, me, and the young women that are out there. There are auditions that we need to uh, participate in. There's books we need to write, countries we need to travel to. And oftentimes what needs to happen is that we do have to be vulnerable. We do need to expose ourselves to risk, which is what vulnerability is. Um, expose ourselves to risk and you know come outside of our, our safety net to take advantage of opportunities and possibilities that exist beyond that. So the vulnerability, which comes first? the vulnerability or just the courage to begin with to be vulnerable or do you have to be vulnerable in order to say you know what I got the courage to do this I saw like a Yana Van Zandt with that didn't I <laughs> that's a good question it's a chicken or, or or the egg you know which comes first kind of question and I do think that you have to conjure your courage to be vulnerable so I'm gonna say you know courage is really foundational and that's what's necessary to be vulnerable to open yourself up to risk and to open yourself up to you know possibilities that you um 
might not anticipate, you know, uh, or outcomes you might not anticipate as a result of being vulnerable. Is there something to for we as women, and then we could dissect that further as women of specific demographics and cultures and communities that writing is good for us and helps. I just had a conversation about Judge Katanji uh, Brown Jackson and everything that she's gone through and how that whole process for little girls that look like her who were viewing that, you know? Yeah, I think writing is medicine. I think Oftentimes what happens if we keep our thoughts in our head, you know, if there is self-doubt that's looming and, and kind of circulating in our mind and we just keep it there, then it has this potential to take us down a negative loop that is really hard to recover from and come out of. So writing gives us a chance to really dissect what it is that we are thinking. It gives us a chance to even be curious about what we're thinking. Like, why did I, why did I think that? Or why did I write that? So that we're giving ourselves space to be curious about what's on the page. And so I do think that the practice and the habit of writing helps us gain clarity and it helps us to kind of take ourselves out of potential negative loops that we might be in if we're keeping our thoughts in our head. So how much of all that you just said and we've been talking about when you came up with A Cool Girl's Guide to Courage? Man, I wrote this book, A Cool Girl's Guide to Courage, to really give girls and young women and even grown women a compelling entry point into the conversation on courage, really for them to start thinking about um, their ability to conjure their courage. You know, I think courage is oftentimes talked about as an important leadership quality. Mm -hmm. And in order for girls and young women and grown women too, all of us to really tap into our potential and develop into the best versions of ourselves, courage is critical. But in the, in the resources that I have seen out there, you know, courage can come across as intimidating or even a little bit heavy to think about and talk about. So I wanted to provide a resource for girls and young women to have a conversation with their selves about their own courage. Um, but from a standpoint that was fun, that was compelling, that was creative, I wanted to talk about courage in a voice that these girls and young women could relate to. And that's what you're going to find in the book. It's interactive in a sense as well. Yes. How important was that? So that the reader didn't Critical. feel like you were just, oh, Candice Adobe's doing all the talking and doing all the writing and you finish the end of the book and that's it. This is different. No, this book gives girls and young women a space for them to reconnect with their confidence, to write out their worries, to rediscover their previous wins and the lessons that they've learned. I mean, this book is really, if you think about it, this book I wrote in the voice of a girl's best friend who mm -hmm. doesn't have time for her limiting beliefs or her self-doubt and, and really is on her team and cheering for her to do the thing that she needs to do. So there are going to be fierce quotes in this book. They're going to be straightforward. They're going to be honest, but they have a little bit of shade in them, Rose. Let's be honest. Because <laughs> I love shade. <laughs> we need for girls to do the things to pursue their most meaningful goals. And this book provides a space, a creative space for them to, to start doing that. Is there a particular age group that you think this is appropriate to begin with? I think this book goes as young as eight and appropriate for as young as eight. And it, it is appropriate for women as old as 108. Um, the thing about this book is courage is universal. The goodness of courage is universal. And so there's goodness in this book for everyone. What did you learn about or was there anything that was revealing about you personally as you were putting this together? 
I learned that as a courage coach writing this book, I had to become the student and I had to apply all of the strategies that I teach to myself because writing a book or doing anything that is creative and putting it out into the world for other people to judge is very scary. You are absolutely in a state of vulnerability and you feel exposed. And so I talked to people about working through that, but I had to take all of what I, what I teach and learn and apply it to myself. That is what, you know, I learned Rose is that you don't ever stop learning to be cre- uh, courageous. Mm-hmm. You don't ever have it all figured out. Um, and even as someone who talks about it all the time, I had to use everything that I that I teach for myself in this in this case. Will you be journaling through a cool girl's guide to courage? That's a great question. I I do need to go through the book myself. Look, See? I wrote all the quotes and all the journal <laughs> prompts, but you're the first person that has asked me, am I going to actually go through it? I will. That's that I will. That, Absolutely. That's what I do. In fact, you know what? We should have an event and I, and marketing's going to love this because I have not asked anybody, which I'm known to do around here anyway. Um, we should put an event together where we in, invite, you know, women, young girls, everybody. And, you know, we'll I don't know if we can give them books because, you know, you got to make money. And I don't know what the marketing budget is, but <laughs> <we can. laughs> emails coming in. Rose, shut up. Uh, but we should do something, you know. We, 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 we should decide. I'm not a big group, but we can come up with maybe 10 to 15 and and pass this book on to some some well-deserving, you know, young women and, and girls. And we can sit there and just go through a few uh, exercises. How about that? I love that. And I would love for us to do that. You know, one of the things about this book, Rose, is it's coming from a place of relatability. There are pop culture references in here that people will get. And so, you know, one of my favorite quotes in the book mm-hmm. is... You're too big for that box. Boxes were made for takeout and donations to Goodwill, not you. And Ooh. I think that the quotes are so, you know, kind of impactful, but they they get you to think about boxes aren't made for girls. People want to put you in a box for your convenience. But let me remind you that you're too big for the box. Boxes weren't made for you and all of your greatness and uniqueness and talent. I saw a review that said the journal prompts are perfectly written for teenagers Easy enough for them to understand, but challenging enough to make them contemplate some serious self-reflection. And I'm glad that this reader wrote this because it don't get serious. We've been having a lot of fun. But when we think about all of the negativity and and the forces that are out there, whether it's through some some to often do social media. And I'm not anti TikTok and Instagram and all that. <laughs> Because I don't want to get that email, but that can be so toxic and damning, especially for our youth and especially for our young girls. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so easy to compare ourselves to other people, to look at social media that always projects a perfect image. You know, there's a lot of pressure for girls and young women to be perfect or to be something Mm -hmm. um, from their parents, from society, from you know, their friends, there's pressure all around. And so, you know, I wanted to offer them a space with all that pressure that's around them, with all of what they might be feeling as a result of the pandemic all around them, offer them a space where they can go be creative by themselves and really think about their courage and their confidence and what it is they want to do and who they want to become and write it out. You mentioned 
being inspired by courageous folks. You mentioned and you, you're talking about, from what I understand, the likes of Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, who are two yeah. outstanding professional athletes, athletes who said, you know what, my mental health comes first. But even yeah. in acknowledging that, where we talk about courage, they still received criticism and backlash. They did, because as you know, healthy as all of us think it is and, and know it is really to put mental health first, the world we live in wanted to see, you know, Simone Biles compete when she wasn't in a space to be ready. The world wants to see Naomi Osaka do the press release when she knows she's not in a mental state to be able to do that. So um, it's not often rewarded. I think we're absolutely getting into a better space with mental health being the topic of conversation of the, over the last few years. But it is important um, for in order to take those worthwhile risks of putting yourself first at the expense of popularity or at the expense of making other people happy, um, you know, you have to be able to conjure your confidence and your courage. And for girls and young women who don't know where to start in that process, I do think that this resource will be a perfect starting place for them. Well, and speaking of starting places, when we talked, you talked about this could be from the age of eight to 108. Let's move into the 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 older folks, folks like me. <laughs> and, and let's talk about the importance of how this could help someone who's in a leadership position. Folks like me, other folks who are in leadership positions, you are a self-proclaimed corporate America dropout. Well, now we're in this space in corporate America where everybody's implementing DEI and the D yes. and the E and the I and half of them don't know what they're doing because it's not working <laughs> according to the employees. But how does this work in the DEI space? Could this this journaling process be helpful in that, in your opinion? I think so. What I often hear from leaders in corporate spaces and even nonprofit spaces who are trying to really um, get into the space of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, who are really trying to implement it, is that it's difficult, you know, that it sounds good to investors or even to the team, but getting into the nitty gritty and implementing this stuff is difficult. And you know why it's difficult? Because it is uh, uh, an invitation for people to call upon their courage, to do things that are uncomfortable, to risk alienating people, to do something that is worthy. That is hard work. And so even for the person who is 50 years old and running a business or you're you know, 25 and running a business, doesn't matter. You need courage, you need confidence. And there are gonna be quotes and fierceness and, and realness in this book that will get you thinking about those things. Is this book also helpful for allies, those those folks who align themselves as the allies for young women and girls. Absolutely. This book is appropriate for allies as well, because it's easy to say you're an ally and it's even easy to demonstrate your allyship when whatever you are confronting doesn't have the maximum amount of tension involved in it. But when you are called to be an ally, when it is truly difficult, when you have a lot to lose by uh, exerting or, or fully displaying your allyship, then you have to be able to call upon your courage and you have to be able to call upon the fullness of your confidence to be able um, to do that, to be an advocate, to be an accomplice, as now some people are saying. So again, you know, this is this is a never ending kind of cycle or work that we have to do is to, to uh, continue to develop our confidence and continue to conjure our courage. Why do you do this work, Candace? Ooh. I love this question. Thank you so much 
for asking me. It's because I've seen personally how incredible um, courage has been to my life and how many doors it has opened up for me. You know, courage does not guarantee that we will be successful. You know, a lot of people think, oh, if I do the courageous thing, then in, then whatever I'm doing will end up how I want it to end up. And that's not true. Courage doesn't guarantee success, but it will guarantee that you open the doors to possibility. And I've personally seen the doors of possibility that have been opened in my life. And I just want to help girls and young women and grown women to open the doors of possibility for themselves. The listener talking about, can Candace come speak to my company? You got some money for it? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there y'all go. I always want to <laughs> stop. You are. I'm not your agent. <laughs> Rose, you want to be my agent, though? No, I can barely be my own agent. <laughs> What's next for you, Candace? What's next is just continuing to help young leaders, young professionals, emerging leaders conjure their courage. So I speak across the country and I have lots of engagements coming up. So it's really just to continue the work and help people understand uh, what courage can do for them. Courage is costly, huh? (laughs) (laughs) It is sometimes. Talking about courage is costly. (laughs) Hey. Uh, I love. We gotta it. pay the bills. Who you telling? <laughs> Illustration and a journaling book. It's called a cool girl, a cool girl's guide to courage. And we will work on doing something. And I will go ahead and and commit to to getting five. I'm gonna pass along to some very very deserving folks. Candace Doby, thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. I'm still not thank publishing you. my journals, but thank you. You know what? I don't think I'll be publishing mine either. <laughs> At least not the older ones. Thank you so much, Rose. This has been fun. Thank you. Good conversation. And Closer Look continues now from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Remembrances are pouring in, honoring the life and work of Dr. Doris Derby, who passed away yesterday. Now, Doris Derby not only participated in the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement as an activist, but she also documented it as a photographer. And Derby was also a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. Later, Doris Derby would serve as Georgia State University's Office of African American Student Services and Programs and Adjunct Associate Professor of Anthropology. And Derby's photography has traveled near and afar, including being exhibited inside Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. Her work has been profiled several times here on WABE. And back in 2018, Doris Derby, along with members of Systography, joined me as the organization celebrated its 25th anniversary. And I asked Ms. Derby about that intersection of arts, photography, and community. Dr. Derby, being someone who not only just was involved in the civil rights movement, but also photographed the civil rights movement, you know how important community is to the media, and particularly back then. So when you look at the mission of cystography and the community connection, still more important now as it was back during the civil rights movement? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, We mentioned, um, Alethea mentioned about the Girl Scouts, but we've been involved with various um, young people Mm -hmm. and different community projects over the years. Um, Even uh, Catherine brought her grandson to uh, our program the other day um, down at the uh, City Hall and sort of getting him involved. And Alethea brought a young person who, uh, uh, I think a friend of hers, 
it's his son and mm-hmm. her son and he was very involved with uh, videos and they wanted to get him to do something else so she brought him and had him like a little intern at the city hall have him taking pictures with us and i think by the time he left he really probably will say that he's going to do something with photography. He wanted because, a camera. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, so, Josh. Yes, yeah, so that was our next thing. So uh, every year we always have some type of activity. We used to um, get young people with, uh, I think, the Boys and Girls Club mm-hmm. to um, take photographs, give them a little Kodak brownie cameras or something, and then they'd take pictures and we put, you know, put them in an exhibit. So... That is a very important part of, of not only who we take photographs of, but how we get others involved. Just a sweet person. That's educator, activist, and fame photographer Doris Derby talking about the intersection of the arts, in this case, photography, youth, and the community. She passed away here in Atlanta, and Doris Derby was 83 years young. And we should note that there is going to be an installation, I think it's over at Studio Plex Water Tower. It's going to take place, uh, I believe, tomorrow. Uh, it's in collaboration with visual artist Charmaine Minifield. It's called Dr. Doris Derby, A Civil Rights Journey. And if it rains, it could be moved inside. But uh, just check their website for more information. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Rezell. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it is always online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, y'all know Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And we have a podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.